0: Now, it might appear as though he is completely changing subjects from what he really covered in verses 1 through 12. If you remember 1 through 12, he spoke almost explicitly and solely about the tongue, about the words that we speak. And now we get to verse 13, and at first glimpse, it looks like he's talking about a completely different subject, the subject of godly wisdom and godly understanding. But when we take a little bit closer look, when we begin to really consider the context a little bit more carefully, we realize that there is a direct connection between what he was doing before and what he's now doing after. There's a connection there. And we know that by understanding the context. In chapter three and verse one, what James did was he was addressing a group of wannabe teachers in the church. These guys wanted to be teachers more than anything. They wanted to teach others, lead others. The problem was they had the wrong motivation. It wasn't for the glory of God. It was for the glory of themselves. They wanted to be exalted and they wanted the praise of man that that teachers during that day uh, ascribed and would receive. And so this is what they wanted to do. So this alarms James. So what James does is he tries to deter them the best that he possibly can. And the first way that he does it is back in chapter 3 and verse 1 is he reminds them of an impending judgment of everyone who is going to teach. He said there in chapter 3, verse 1, now many of you should be, uh, uh, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter, with a greater strictness. So he tries to deter them, saying, hey, look, there's a, there's a big judgment coming for you as a teacher. And now he's going to try to deter him in another way by suggesting not only are they not qualified because they have the wrong motivation, but here's the key. They're also not qualified, or they're not also, cannot become teachers because they're unqualified. They're missing two of the most important qualifications and elements of a teacher who is going to lead the church. And what are those things that they need? Well, he says it right here. They need godly wisdom, and they need godly understanding. Now, let 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 me break a couple things down for you before we really jump into this. Um... He's speaking directly to teachers in a church, but I want you to understand from the get go the teaching here, the truth that we find in the application goes far beyond just teachers. It goes to every single believer. In fact, if if we're consistent with the theme of James, what James is gonna say, and I think this is gonna become abundantly clear as we unpack it, he's gonna suggest that really godly wisdom and godly understanding is actually another demonstration to how you know whether you're truly in the faith or not. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break this little, these verses up into two parts. The first section is what we're going to do is we're going to look at what godly wisdom and understanding are, because that's what he's speaking about. What, what is it that he means by these things? And then second, we're going to ask, basically, how do we know that we have them? Okay, if this is what godly wisdom and, and understanding look like, then how do I know whether I have those things or not? The second half of this, of this sermon, we're going to look at the worldly wisdom, what worldly wisdom and understanding are. Then we have to ask the question once again, how do we know if we have them? So what wisdom do we have? God's wisdom or the world's wisdom? How are we living our lives? Well, let's note, first of all, what godly wisdom and understanding are. Uh, Look at the scriptures, if you will. He begins with that word wisdom, but I want to start with understanding. And and the reason, I think will become apparent in just a couple moments. Let's look at the word understanding. The word there really refers to a person who is an expert in a particular field of study. In other words, he's describing somebody that really knows their stuff. They've spent an immense amount of time, perhaps a lot of money, really becoming focused on one area of study, and they've been gathering and eating up knowledge like you would not believe. Now, I I need to set something straight real quick before we press on here. And that's this is that nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that somebody who knows more about the word of God is somehow, is somehow more worthy or, 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 or better or more superior in any way than another believer who doesn't know as much about the word of God. You got that? We, we, we would all agree, right? No more worth to the person that knows more than to the other person who's less. We've all been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all equal at the cross. We, we agree? However, I think we'd also agree that, that it would be a true statement to say but those who know the word and understand it more broadly and more deeply that have a better understanding of it also are at a greater advantage of living out the Christian life than the person who's ignorant of it. Would, would you agree with that? I think that Jesus would. Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Here's his prayer. He says, sanctify them. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Then he said, your word is truth. Jesus was asking the father. He said, God, change them into my image because my image is like you. I reflect your glory. So change them into the glorifying picture of me. And he says, in the way that you do it is you do it through your word. Did you catch that? Jane, or, or Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says that we are to be, he commands that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, what are we being transformed into? The image and likeness of who? Christ. In the image and likeness of, of Christ. Do you want to know how people change? Here it is. We change by our minds being renewed our minds being renewed. That is that we change our mind. We change our mind on what's important. We change our view of ourselves. We change the view of who God is. We change the view of how we're supposed to live and what the purpose of life is. How do we come about changing all that? How do we renew the mind? Through guess what? The word of God is what he says. And so, so we understand this. And, 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 and let, me, let me just follow that up with this idea is, is we can be disobedient to what we know but we can't be obedient to what we don't know. Does, does that make sense? In other words, we read those scriptures all the time. We know a whole lot, and a lot of us are not being faithful to that, but you have absolutely no possibility of being obedient to the word of God apart from knowing it and understanding it. So that's understanding. That's what he means by godly understanding, understanding the word of God. Next, he talks about specifically about wisdom. Now, wisdom is different than understanding. We talked about this a couple weeks back. Uh, wisdom, uh, w- whereas understanding or knowledge deals with just the mere facts, wisdom deals with the application of those facts, specifically for the Christian, the application of God's word to everyday life on how we live determines on what we know from the word of God. And it's interesting that these two ideas, wisdom and understanding, are found hand in hand throughout the scriptures. And and the Bible's constantly telling us to pray for them and to seek after them. It's asking the question, where do we find them? For example, Job 28, verse 12. Listen, you find both words. He says, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Wisdom and understanding. We see it again in Proverbs chapter chapter 4, verse 5. We read this. It says, get wisdom. And he says, get understanding. In Proverbs 23, 23, again, buy truth and do not sell it, buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Do you see how constantly God's telling us we need both? We need the word, yes, but we also need wisdom to know how to live out the word of God that it is that we're ultimately learning. But did you notice that wisdom always came first? Wisdom comes first, why? Because it's really the priority. You cannot become like Christ without knowing the word of God, but you can know the word of God without becoming like Christ unless you have the wisdom of God to know how to apply it to your very soul and to your very life. You know, it's interesting here because, to, to me because when you look at this, it's pretty easy to understand how it is that we get wisdom, how we, is that we get understanding. How do we do it? We study God's word, Right? right? Would you agree? Somebody comes and goes, man, I really want to know the Word of God. Here's my big, deep theological answer. Study. Really? Yeah, that you study the Word, get into the Word. It's amazing to me how in 30 years of being saved, that's never changed. That whole thing has always been the same, and I keep preaching it from the pulpit, and here's what I keep saying. Hey, how you guys doing with studying the Word? You guys doing well? Oh, not so good. Bro, you've been born again for 30 years, and you're still not studying the Word, right? You, You... You guys with me on that? Not good, not wise. You have to know the word of God to be transformed in the image and likeness of Christ. How do you get godly understanding? Study God's word. How do you get godly wisdom? Now, that's a whole nother thing. How do you get it? You can't buy it. You can't study the mess out of it. You can know a whole lot, but you can't ultimately just gain wisdom. How do you do it? Well, the Bible says this way, you study to get understanding. You fear in order to get wisdom. The Bible says in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The way that you have wisdom is by having a right understanding of who you are in light of who God is. To understand how small you are, how pea-brainish your brain is, and how incredibly exultant, glorious, wonderful, intelligent, great, powerful you keep going that god is you understand it j.i. packer says it this way what does that mean he says this he says not until we have become humble and teachable standing in awe of god's holiness and sovereignty acknowledging our own littleness and distrusting our own thoughts and willing to have our minds turned upside down to what is right can divine wisdom become ours did you catch that he says, here's, here's what you need. It, it, what you need more than anything is you need godly understanding. How do we get it? How do we get it? Study of God's word. We need wisdom. How do we get it? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This is what we need. Now, how do we know whether we have it or not? Okay, some, because what's happening here is the people that he's writing to are boasting that they have it. Uh, they're sitting back going, hey, listen, you say that we need godly wisdom. We need godly understanding. Well, listen. We've got that. That's why we should be a teacher. So he's going to sit there and get a check and go, okay, all of you that think you're wise, all of you think that you have great understanding, you know the Bible, let's have a little test. Here's how you know if you have these things, all right? So this is what he does. He says, "'By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom.'" This is classic James, isn't it? Okay, James has very little use for your words or my words or anybody else's words. He puts very little value on those unless we're saying something we ought not to be saying. Instead for James, what is important is not words, but what, actions. He wants action, he wants to see it. Do you remember back in chapter two, verse 18? People were professing to have faith. He goes, hey, you say you have faith, great. Prove it to me. He said there, he says, show me your faith apart from your works, impossible to do and I will show you my faith by my works. Here was his point. You say that you have faith in God, then demonstrate it through a transformed life. Here, he's bringing the same exact idea. He says, you guys say that you have godly wisdom and you have godly understanding? He says, then prove it by showing that wisdom lived out in your life. And what's great is in this one sentence, he gives us how exactly it's supposed to be lived out. Did you catch it? Two things. First of all, here's how it's lived out. The first way that we demonstrate in our lives that we truly have God's wisdom and his understanding is number one, submitting to Christ in all we do. Notice that phrase. It says, show his works. This is something that you do. Did you notice the word works is plural? He's not saying that you just do one thing. He says you do many things. In fact, you do all things. What is he talking about? He's talking about that you and I are to submit ourselves fully and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you do that, you demonstrate that you have godly wisdom and you have godly understanding. Now, he it, 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 it doesn't mean part, he means all. See, because I think this is where you and I kind of work a little bit. We're sitting there, look at track record. Yeah, I'm submitting to God in that. I'm submitting to God with friends and with family. Not finances, but that's okay, I'm doing pretty well. He goes, that's ignorant. That's the opposite of wisdom. What true wisdom is, is for you to sit there and say, everything I have and everything I am is God's. By the way, this is not only a demonstration of what true wisdom and understanding is, it's also a demonstration of what basic Christianity is. Christianity, you may not know this, maybe some people are confused about what this whole Christian thing is about. Let me, let me, let me clarify this. Christianity is not the mere believing certain facts about the person of Jesus Christ, It's not merely about going about doing a few religious practices per week. Christianity is the full submission of all you are and all you have to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's salvation. But it's also wise and understanding. Now, notice something. He's going to switch here. He's going to give us a second thing. Now, So the first idea of understanding that we're doing those things, we have wisdom, we have understanding is that we have everything in submission to him. We submit everything we do to him. Second, we trust in Christ in all that he does. Now notice that second part of that sentence. He says, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. Now this is, this is challenging. The word meekness that's translated there, the, the original Greek word, very difficult to be able to translate. Some commentators have ultimately suggested that it's an untranslatable word. You know, that's what the pastor loves. Untranslatable word, go ahead and teach it. You know, that's, that's always difficult to do. Now, scholars have tried to obviously uh, be able to translate it. They've translated it, and maybe some of your Bibles have humility, meekness, gentleness, and all of those are pretty good ideas of what he's trying to get across. But there's really something much more profound that he's trying to say. So I think the way to translate this is not with a mere word, but is, rather is with a single concept. What James is describing a person of as he's describing the type of person who has such a full and complete confidence in the sovereignty of God, his ability to rule and to reign and to do his sovereign will. He says that no matter how bad things happen, no matter how bad things are, no matter how much it's riddled with suffering or hardships, no matter how many bad things come on our way, no matter how bleak, we accept those things by God with no resistance. We don't fight. We don't complain. We don't struggle against. We don't seek to manipulate others or ourselves or the situation. Instead, what we do is we entrust ourselves fully in the fact that God is a good God. Nothing comes our way except for what is for our very good. We do and we obey obey what he tells us to do, and we sit back and we entrust ourselves completely to whatever it is, to the consequences, to the outcomes. God, I'm just gonna sit back. I'm gonna do what you're gonna do. You see it, right? That, that's wisdom. God, I'm gonna do and submit myself completely to you, and however this ultimately looks, I'm gonna let you determine that. I'm not gonna fight. Not gonna, not, not, not gonna bicker, not gonna complain. See, that's what these teachers are doing. Understand the context again. These teachers wanna be teachers, so what they're doing is to make themselves teachers, which God doesn't want them to be. What are they doing? Fight against the sovereign will of God. They're fighting each other to try to exalt themselves to a particular position. Do you see that? And so they're, they're, they're pushing. Let me, let me give you another picture of kind of what this looks like. Peter says to us, this is, this is wisdom and understanding. He says, those who suffer according to God's will He says, should commit themselves to the faithful Christ and continue to do good. That's wisdom and understanding. You're sitting there going, man, I'm having really hard times. I'm having difficulties. I'm not gonna fight against this. I'm not gonna complain against whatever it is that God sovereignly wants inside of my life is allowing to happen to my life. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna keep being obedient. I'm just gonna keep being obedient to God and I'm gonna allow him to be able to determine the outcome of this. You know who's a perfect picture of this? I know it will come to a surprise, Jesus 1 Peter chapter two, verse 21 through 23. He says, for two, he, says, he says, this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit from his mouth. When he was reviled, check this out. Here's the, here's the wisdom he's talking about. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. What was he doing? Trusting God. I'll be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Something bad happens, I'm just going to trust you. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not going to try to manipulate it. I believe in your sovereign love for me. He says, and when he was reviled, he did, not, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He goes, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, let me, let me suggest, we got, we got two points of application here. One is, very clearly, we we get this. Not every single one of us, probably none of us, have completely and have submitted perfectly everything in our lives to Christ. Would you agree? There is an overwhelming, hey God, here I am. But what does God do? He keeps working that out in our life, week by week and day by day and month by month. You're right. Hey, somebody said right after the service, the first service, they go, praise God. God doesn't reveal everything that's wrong with my sinful heart at one time. I couldn't handle it. I said, that's right, brother. It's just a long process right and so what happens is this is let me ask you this what areas do you know expressly that are not submitted to god right now friends family fund finances whatever it is i'd try to give you f it's easier to remember right right what area that you know because here's the idea the holy spirit speaking to you sits there and says man this is not mine you're doing this your way not my way he says that's not wise first of all submit it to me that's the, wisdom, that's the understanding of God. Know what I want, and then submit to it. That's the wisdom and understanding of me. But here's the second part. Submit in all you do, but then sit back and just go, God, whatever your sovereign will is for my life, I'm willing to accept. I'm willing to be able to receive. Let me, let me kind of tell you kind of how this looks real quick. I used this at the end last, last time, but let me use it here. Uh, some of you guys know that my wife and I, we foster, and we've got other families in in our, our church that foster, and I praise God for them. And, uh, and you know, it, it's probably not for everybody, but for my wife and I, it's just kind of how we're trying to work out our faith. It's how we're trying to work out the gospel. And so the Bible tells us that we need to take care of those that, that are in trouble and need to be cared for. So we, there's many ways to do that, by the way. It's just one way that we're trying to work it out. And so we've had the privilege of having four kids uh, in our home over a period of time, over a period of years, and to kind of minister to them. Our house isn't big enough to have more than one at a time. So uh, with the other four, they're kind of messing everything up. So, uh, so, so, so we kinda, we, we've had them in there. And so here's been all of our approach. Our, our hearts have always been open to try to meet a need. And then eventually, if God opens the door to be able for adoption, that's great. And I got to tell you, especially in my wife's heart and in my wife's heart, we're always sitting there going, man, I hope it ends in adoption. I hope it ends in adoption. So we're to do this, but we're really ultimately wanting to, to adopt one of these children. Well, it doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. And there's so much frustration in the middle of that. you know. And you're trying to figure, did we do the right thing? Did we not do the right thing? Did we write the right people? Did we make the right arguments? What, what, what's going on? Why am I struggling with all this? And so finally, we got to uh, our little bae Ellie that we have in our home right now. And sweet little thing, she's eight and a half months old. We've had her for eight months. So, so she knows us basically as family. And so... So what we've done is we've taken a completely different approach. I think before we were kind of living much more by worldly wisdom, as we'll see in a minute. And then I think God, you know, you do things wrong long enough, God begins to finally get in through your head. And so here's what we would do. And it's very confusing to us because people will come up to us sometimes and they go, oh, we don't know how you do it. We don't know how you do it. There's no way. There's no way that I could bring a kid in my home and then them take them away. There's no way. It's, it, it would break my heart. I completely understand what it is that the person's saying but do you understand from my perspective what it sounds like? sounds like I don't have a heart, right? So you can bring kids into the home to take care of them, but because really you don't care enough because your heart won't be ripped off if they go. And I'm sitting back going, no, 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 we care, we care. But let me try to give you a little bit more insight of why we think that we're able to do it and none of it is because of us. I think it's because we finally got to the point, and this is after a lot of mistakes. With so many of the other children, we jockeyed for position. We tried to work things. We tried to write letters. We tried to visit people. We tried to do whatever we could to butter up people to somehow be able to work the system to be able to get the children to stay with us. And each and every time, it was clearly not the sovereign plan of God, and it caused us a great amount of heartache. Now with Ellie, we don't know how it's gonna end. But here's what I know. People are like, well, is it gonna break your heart? I said, we'll be sad. And I said, but we won't be devastated. They go, Why? And I said, because I believe in an absolute sovereign God. That God has the very best for us. He has the very best for that girl. If He takes her out of our home, it's easy for us to sit back and think that we're the best for her. But God knows better than I do. If God wants to take her and bring her to another family, it's what's best for them and it's best for us. And here's what you're allowed to do you're allowed to rest in that. Be obedient to do what God has called you to do. Sit back and rest, whatever it is. You said, what if it's bad? Rest in it, because God knows what you need. Do you understand that you need the heart? You need the stress. You need the pain, because for you and I, it's the only thing that will ever drive us to our knees and faith to Christ. We need it, and God will say, I'll allow you the difficulty if it means that you'll become like me. That's what that godly understanding and wisdom, I think, looks like. Now, let's look at the other side. What worldly wisdom and understanding are like. Now, if you felt like you got slapped in the face last week, be prepared for another slap. Here we go, all right? James has a great way of doing this. He says, says, now we're going to see both what worldly wisdom uh, and understanding are and at the same time look at how we know if we have it. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, I love what James does here. James doesn't beat around the bush. He's not trying to like stay on the whole surface thing, right? You, you go in for counseling and people are like, oh man, the problem is that you drink too much or you do this or you do not. Know. Okay, those are all surface issues. That's not really the core of the problem, right? It's not the root of the problem. You're doing all of these things because there's something wrong with the, with, with the heart of the problem and the heart of the problem is what? The heart. And so what happens is he's telling these teachers, he's like, you're fighting, bickering, complaining, manipulating each other, and I'm not even going to address that. I'm going to go straight to the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is your heart is full of wickedness and sin. And then he tells us the two types of sin that are within the heart that also drive the wisdom and understanding of the world. What are they? First of all is bitter jealousy. I'm sure none of you know this, so let me try to explain what bitter jealousy is, all right? Bitter jealousy refers to the attitude of a person that can't stand the popularity or success or fame or applause of someone else, right? I, I know you don't know what it is. Let me, let me try to, for we sinners, let me try to lay this out for you. Uh, it's when a person feels, hears the praise of their coworker and it instantly inside they begin to tense up and they begin to feel sick inside themselves and there's a little bit of anger and even rage, because they don't like, by the way, if you want to know that you're becoming more like Christ, then you'll find yourself genuinely being able to applaud people for the good things that they do. And you'll feel good about their recognition. I'm not there yet. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, all right? Depends on what the circumstance is, all right? Don't look all spiritual, you do the same thing, all right? All right. And so, so look. look here, so here's the idea. So instead of praising them, applauding them, they feel this angst within them. But what do we know about sin? It's got to find its way out, doesn't it? So this is where, it, and so here's kind of how it looks. You're at work, somebody sits there and goes, man, it's amazing what an amazing job they've done. It's amazing their occupation and their career. They've had an astounding, amazing, mom-blowing career of all they've been able to accomplish. And you sit there, and you know, because you've been a Christian long enough, that you can't just blast that person. You've got to be smooth about it. So what you do is you go, you know, yeah, they, they've really accomplished a lot of great things. It's, it's unfortunate that their family has had to pay the price for it. Right? Do you, do you see what we're doing here? Can't allow them to receive praise. We want the praise. So the best way to be able to get the praise and begin to redirect it is pound them down to the ground. Pound them down, all right? Now, notice the next idea. Selfish ambition, all right? So these are like two Ps in a pod here. Selfish ambition or uh, bit, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a term, actually it's a political term, speaks of a person uh, who is willing to do anything that they can to be elected. So get the picture. Jealousy, don't like what's going on. They're receiving praise. They're receiving attention that I really want. Let me push them down draw it away from me, and then what I'm gonna do is with my lips, I'm gonna tackle them to the ground, and then with my lips, I'm gonna exalt myself as well. All right, since you guys don't sin, let me tell you from perspective of sinful people, here's how it works. So in my context, and it's kind of the context, remember he's talking about teachers, so this is easy for me to follow. So almost every week, except for whatever, uh, you know, here's Pastor Mike, he's preaching from week to week to week to week. Most weeks don't hear much of anything. Which sometimes can actually be a good thing. Okay, you know, to be honest with you. But don't really whole lot, not a whole lot. Hey, God's changing me, whatever, all that kind of stuff. I leave. Dan preaches. All right, here it is. My phone's blowing up, texting, emails, phone calls. Bro, you have no idea. That dude hit it out of the park. Dude. My husband got saved, all of our family saved, 44 people saved that Sunday. The Spirit moved like you would not believe, it was the most unbelievable thing we have ever seen in our whole, Is the pinnacle of our Christian life, right then, right there. All right, for me, man, that's great. Really good, man, that's, that's right on. Well, I'm glad that he did well because, you know, he's kind of a hit or miss guy. (laughs) You know, you just, it's like flipping a coin. Sometimes he's up, sometimes he's down. You just don't know. So you see that? You see the pushing down there? Okay, so there's the pushing down. And then here comes the next part. Here's the next part. The next part is, well, I'll tell you, I'm really, I got to tell you, I'm really, really glad that he did well because I've really been working with him really trying to show him the ways and really show him how to exegete appropriately the word of God, right? And so we say that. And so, now, I don't know what it looks like for you. That's what it looks like in the preaching experience. I don't really struggle with that that much, just to be honest with you. Just trying to, I know you're like, oh, it's okay, it's all right. No, I'm just trying to give you an illustration, okay? So that's kind of how it works. But you know the feeling, don't you? You know it, don't you? You know that angst. You know that jealousy. You know how it begins to build up. You know how it finds a way in a mouth and badgering somebody else, knocking them down, and then exalting yourself. Well, do you know this part? Look, at as though this isn't bad enough. Notice what he says next. He says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Apparently, this group of people were doing these things, pushing down, exalting self with their mouths, and then with the same exact mouth, they were exalting that they were doing all of this with the right motivation. I've even done that. Here's what's crazy. Unless you are completely devoid of the Spirit in any kind of conscience, when you are downing somebody else out of a fit of jealousy, the Holy Spirit is convicting you that what you're doing is wrong. When you begin to exalt yourself, the same time the Holy Spirit's there convicting you this is wrong. But here's the idea. We so desperately are sinful oftentimes in what we say and how we use our mouth and how wicked we are That we'll even lie to cover up what it was that we were saying to make it sound spiritual. And the whole time, knowing the whole time that we're not doing it for the glory of God, we're doing it for the glory of ourselves. That's frightening. And notice something, you know, you would think, uh, uh, Tozer says this, he says, hardly anything else reveals so well the fear and uncertainty among men as the length to which they will go to hide their true selves from each other and even from their own eyes. The only people we're fooling is no one. We're not fooling anybody with that certainly not ourselves, and certainly not God. Now, you would think that it would go uns- it, it would. He, he wouldn't even have to say that this is not godly, but notice what he says in verse 15. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Just very quickly. I mean, these are obviously not good things. Earthly, as it being opposed of heavenly. Unspiritual, uh, being in, in the difference between spiritual and unspiritual. What's significant about that? Well, we, I stop and think about... Jesus in John chapter 4 and verse 30, uh, 23, when he sees the woman at the well, do you remember there? And Jesus comes to her and he says, the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. He says, if you're unspiritual, then you have nothing to do and have no way of being honoring and praising the father. Finally, he says, where does this come to? And it's kind of like he's taking steps down. This is bad. This is worse. This is the worst. He says, where does it find itself? This this, this worldly wisdom, which is, which is driven by jealousy and self-promotion, where does this come from? And he goes, it's demonic. In other words, it comes from hell. And we know who the king of the demons are, right? Let's not fool ourselves. it's Satan. And if you stop and think and you understand the person of Satan, you understand very clearly, you see that that worldly wisdom that we talked about, pushing down and exalting oneself, we see exactly where it comes from. Do you remember Satan and speaking of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14? It says this, You said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Sound familiar? What's he doing? Exalting. But he was also just doing everything he could to diminish the glory of God. In Genesis 3, 5, do you remember when, 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 um, when the serpent is trying to tempt Eve? Remember in, in the garden? And he comes over to her and he's trying to convince her, hey, listen, did God really say that? Then he says this to her, 3, 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. She's trying to down God. He's saying the only reason that God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit is because he knows that you're going to be like him. Don't you let him do that. He's got a false motivation. He's downing him to try to exalt himself. So we see, guys, that when we do that, wherever it is, whether it's in a friendship or a marriage or with coworkers or the people in the church, that's the wisdom of the world which has its root in Satan himself. And he says here, notice this. It's completely different than who Christ is. Christ, you said, where's the hope? The hope is in Christ. Here's the devil, he's low, he's trying to go high. Christ is high, he's trying to go low. And we see that in, in, in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Notice it says, do, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So what is he talking about? He's talking about godly wisdom and understanding. This is what it looks like. Don't just look after your own interest. Look after the interest of others. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Then verse five, where do we get this? Where do we get it from? Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, somebody said to me right after the first service, they said, Mike, I listen to this. I get so identified with this, and I, and, and I wonder to myself where the hope is. But this is what I, was. before I said anything, here's what he said. I guess the hope is in Christ, isn't it? That's right. The hope is in Christ. It's understanding that when Jesus died, he not only forgave you of your sins to unite you in a right relationship with God for all eternity, he also changed you and indwelt you with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we no longer have to live by the wisdom of the world, by pushing others down to elevate ourselves, but rather we can do and submit ourselves fully to God and then we can entrust ourselves fully to him as well. What a beautiful thing. Notice this at the end. He says, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You think of any relationship, you, through, you, you tell me any relationship or any church that is in turmoil and disorder, I'll tell you a church and a group of people that are living by the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. They're pushing each other down. They're trying to raise up. Guys, don't you see that in marriages? the saddest thing when you see people in marriages do this, shoving each other down, exalting themselves, trying to one-up each other. That's of the devil, not of God. Same in churches, same everywhere else. So let me ask you this. Let me just, just ask you this question. So in your own life, how does this, how's this work out? how's it looking for you? Are are you right now? Because what I would think is this, is that some of us are still dealing with that whole idea of submitting to God. But I think where many of us in this place and in this church are working right now, we'll always work about the submission part. It's truly sitting back saying, hey God, today, I believe you're sovereign. And whether it's cancer, or whether it's me not getting a job, or whether me it's being single, even though it's all the things that in and of themselves may not be particularly good, I trust you because you are a good God. I'm not gonna fight. I'm not gonna fight for rights. I'm just gonna do and allow you to do as you see fit. Now that, folks, is a call to faith, amen? Let's close your eyes, bow your heads. Let's stand, if you will. We're gonna pray. Ashley, you believe in others are coming We're going to go ahead and pray and respond. I'm going to be down here front.